0: So we're continuing our series in Philosophy 101 today, and our guide, as always, is the great master of philosophy, the professor, Peter Kreeft, and his monumental four-volume work, Socrates' Children, where he gives us the top 100 philosophers, and which we are not going to name here. (laughs) Because if we did, we would lose the vast majority of you, our very appreciated listeners. But what we are going to cover is the big nine, as Peter Kreef calls them. And real quick, the big nine are Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, Descartes, Hume, Kant, and Hegel. Those are the big nine philosophers that Professor Peter Kreef believes we should know. Now, if you want to check out the book in all four volumes, you can check out all 100 philosophers and their, uh, their writings and Kreef's commentary on those writings. Now, Socrates and Plato, we have covered already in previous Mojo Minutes, so be sure to check those out. But what, today, we are going to dive again into the deep end of the pool with Aristotle, our third philosopher that we should know. And so with that, let's jump right into the deep end now, shall we? And going to the book Socrates' Children for our first pull quote. Coleridge said that every man is born either a Platonist, Platonist rather, or an Aristotelian. Alas, most of us nowadays are neither. But Coleridge was has a point. Plato is the archetype of the radical Surprising philosopher who comes to a point he has one big idea, while Aristotle is the archetype of a well-rounded common sense. Plato is Tarzan swinging on a vine to rescue Jane from crocodiles in one fell swoop, while Aristotle is the explorer carefully mapping every inch of the jungle. Plato's works are dramatic dialogues written written for popular consumption. While Aristotle's are edited lecture notes kept in a research library, they are exciting to think about, but not to read. Or rather, they are exciting to read only because discovering order is exciting in a deep, satisfying, and purely intellectual way. Now, Aristotle is a big subject. There is a lot to him. We will not do him justice here. But suffice it to say that you should know him. You should know his writings. Of the big nine, I would say, the big nine philosophers, that is, I would say the big three you should know is Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas. Why? Because, like Kreef says, they bring order to chaos. They bring depth of theology to life. And in terms of Christianity, if you are a Christian, Augustine and Aquinas are 1A and 1B. Now let's go back to the book to cover Aristotle's biography real quick. Aristotle's life is naturally divided into four parts. Number one, his father was the court physician to the king of Macedonia, just north of Greece. His father died when he was young, and Aristotle went to Plato's academy to study and stayed for 20 years as Plato's guest student. Plato called him the mind of the school. He wrote many popular dialogues in the Platonic style, but all of them are lost. During his lifetime, he was not nearly as famous or popular as Plato. Number two, he left the academy when Plato died in 347 BC, and Plato's nephew Septuatus, rather than Aristotle, became the head of the school. He set up his own school for a while in Essos in northwest Turkey. Essos. Then returned to Macedonia to tutor Alexander the Great, who would conquer the world with armies and Greek civilization. Number three, Aristotle would return to Athens to found his own university, the Lyceum, and his own philosophical system with the apologetic tribute to Plato, quote, dear indeed is Plato, but dearer still is truth. He was called the peripatetic means walking around because he would lecture while he and his student and his pupils walked since he believed that walking was good for philosophizing because it stimulated the conscious reason while lying down on one's back was good for poetry because it stimulated the imagination, what we now call the unconscious. Now, Freud found the same thing to be true. Thus, he had his patients lie down during psychoanalysis. Now, about that school, the Lyceum that Aristotle founded, some fascinating facts that we have discovered is it was a scientific research university complete with a zoo. Over some 500 species of animals were supplied by Alexander the Great from around the world. The laboratory had dissected some 50 species. Now the research library included some of the 158 city state constitutions from around the Greek world. There was also a museum there and Aristotle's lecture notes. They were neither edited or collected by himself, but no one knows for sure. Let's go back to the book. (laughs) After Aristotle directed the Lyceum for 12 years, Alexander died in 323. Athens exploded with anti-Macedonian feeling and summoned Aristotle to appear in court to answer charges of impiety, shades of Socrates' ghost. Unlike Socrates, Aristotle was too practical for martyrdom. He left, he left Athens, explaining that he would not allow the Athenians to sin twice against philosophy. He died in Euboea the next year in 322. When the Great Library of Alexandria was destroyed, many of Aristotle's books perished. In 80 BC, Roman soldiers found a separate collection of his manuscripts in the pit in Turkey and brought them to Rome, where they were copied. When Rome fell and when the Greek schools were closed, scholars brought them to Syria, then Iraq and Iran, where Muslim philosophers discovered and translated them from Greek to Latin to Syriac, to Arabic. Diogenes Lateritis says Aristotle wrote 445,270 lines. He listed 386 titles. The books recognized as Aristotle's today are complica- comp- compilations and anthologies edited by Adronicus of Rhodes who organized 2,000 pages of text, twice the amount we have from Plato, into ordered categories. Many of them were probably lecture notes from his students. So he lived from 384 to 322 BC, some 62 years. Now, Kreef tells us in the Middle Ages he was known as the philosopher. and He was also known as the master of those who know mainly because he was the master orderer, he was the outliner of all reality. Now, Aristotle discovered and formulated the basic rules of logic. Now, let's go back to our book for our first big nugget of wisdom. Aristotle's logic is perhaps the single most useful idea in the history of thought for whatever we think about we must think about it either logically or illogically and whether we are seeking heaven or hamburgers we will much more we will much more likely get it if we think logically i.e. clearly truly and reasonably these are the three things logic seeks clarity truth and proof for there are three acts of the mind classified by aristotle from a logical point of view number 1 Conceiving and understanding a concept, a term, a meaning like man or mortal. This is not of itself either true or false. Number two, judging or predicating one concept of another in a declarative sentence or proposition like all men are mortal. This is either true or false. And number three, reasoning from one or more propositions, premises, or assumptions, to another, a conclusion, giving reasons, premises, for our beliefs, conclusions. This is done by either a, induction, reasoning from many particular cases to a generalization, he and he and she and she are mortal, therefore all are mortal, or deduction, from a general principle to a particular conclusion i.g. the syllogism all men are mortal socrates is a man therefore socrates is mortal and deduction yields certainty induction only probability Ooh. so that's some super deep stuff stuff there um you might want to get the book just to be able to see the words written down from that conclusion that we just grabbed, but such good stuff. Wow. Keep in mind, this guy is writing in the fourth century BC. He's writing and thinking about this stuff. Extremely impressive. Let's move on to our next big nugget of philosophical wisdom. Central to Aristotle's philosophy of nature or physics is his theory of the, quote, four causes. Next to his logic, this is probably the single most useful idea in the history of human thought for understanding and classifying things, anythings, I.G. for organizing term papers, perhaps. There are only four kinds of questions questions anyone can ever ask about anything. Number one, what is it made of? What is its raw material or contents? Aristotle called this the material cause. Number two, what is it made into? What is its essential nature? Aristotle called this the formal cause. What made it or changed it? Where did it come from? Aristotle called this the efficient cause. And where is it going to What is its natural or artificial end? Aristotle called this the final cause. And just as for some examples here, there's a graph. I'm going to try and describe this graph so you can understand it. He's going to give us the thing or the event, and then he's going to give us the four causes. The material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, and final cause, moving left to right. So, for example, a desk is a thing or an event. The material cause is the wood. The formal cause is the desk. The efficient cause is the carpenter. And the final cause is to hold books or papers. A chair. The material cause is a wood. Formal cause, chair. Efficient cause, carpenter. And final cause, to hold sitting persons. How about the bust of Socrates? The material cause is ivory. The formal cause is Socrates' face. The efficient cause is sculptor. And the final cause is to remember Socrates. Now how about eating? The material cause for eating is food. formal cause is ingestion. The efficient cause is swallowing. And the final cause is health. And how about virtue? Because this is where it really gets good. The thing or the event is virtue. The material cause is habit. Imagine that. We talk about habits all the time. The formal cause is goodness. The efficient cause is choice. We do have a choice in it. And the final cause is happiness. Or perfection. Now, moving on to the next key idea, we should talk about to just show you how much influence the philosopher had on the world until the scientific method was discovered, which Peter Kreef, the philosopher or the the professor, rather credits as probably the single most important discovery in the entire history of science. Aristotle's Four Causes was applying this to the realm of science. It's fascinating to think about that. Now, Aristotle's great nugget of wisdom is the uncaused caused. So let's go to that. Metaphysics includes but is not limited to thinking about God or gods. Here are some important conclusions Aristotle came to on this subject. Aristotle argued by logical reasoning alone, without relying on any religious faith, that there must exist one supreme, first, uncaused, caused, or unmoved mover for the entire universe of changing things. Like most people, he called this being God. His argument is essentially the following. Aristotle uses the word motion for all change. What we call motion, change in place, or locomotion, is only one kind of motion. All motion is the actualizing of potentiality. Nothing can move or change itself because nothing not already actual can actualize itself. Nothing can give to another what it does not have itself. Okay, that is some super deep, deep stuff. Again, I would urge you to get Aristotle's writings, especially the metaphys- metaphysics yourself, to unpack this very deep stuff. Many Christians have linked Aristotle to believing in a monotheistic God in infinite proportions. That's unfair. As Kreef points out, let's go back to the book. Aristotle's God is not infinite, for Aristotle thought that an actual infinite God would become an imperfection. For Aristotle, infinite means indefinite. In contrast, the God of Judeo-Christian theology is infinite indefinite perfections. Infinitely wise and loving and powerful, etc., Aristotle thought there were only potentially infinite things, like time and numbers, which can be infinitely added or divided. And then we come to the summum bonum, the greatest good, perhaps where Aristotle's star shines brightest. Let's go back to the book. At the beginning of his classic the Neomachian Ethics Aristotle defines good as the object of desire as truth is the object of knowledge when we desire something evil that can be only because it appears as good or desirable in some way even though it may not really be thus the desired is not necessarily the same as the desirable in other words subjective wants are not the same as objective needs ethical studies what ethics ethics itself studies what is really not just apparently good this means that facts and values are not mutually exclusive concepts as they are in much modern ethical philosophy values Aristotle spoke of goods rather than values, as did all pre-modern thinkers, are certain kind of facts. They are not empirical or scientific facts, but they are objectively real. Some things like courage or spinach or friends are really good for us, while other things like theft or cocaine or suicide are really bad for us. And here this book really shows its value. It asks us the essential questions. If there is one final end of everything we desire or do, what is it? What is the end of ends? What's the greatest good? What's the sumum bonum? What's the point or the purpose or the goal of life? What's all of this about, Alfie? What's the meaning of life? Well, for that, let's go back to the book for our final quote. In one sense, the answer is easy. It's what everybody seeks as the end of everything else and never as a means to anything else. It's happiness. But the Greek word eudaimonia that Aristotle uses here means not just subjective satisfaction or contentment but objective perfection or blessedness. It is not just feeling good, but being good. It is objectively real goodness or well-being and not merely the mental awareness of it and the felt pleasure of it, which are the effects of its real presence to us. The suffering, which can help us cultivate virtues like courage and wisdom, can be part of the happiness of eudaimonia. Even though it is not part of the happiness of mere contentment. And thus, moral virtue, which not everyone subjectively wants, is still what everyone objectively needs in order to reach true happiness or eudaimonia. You can't really be happy unless you're really good. Holy smokes! Holy smokes indeed. That is so good. You can't be really happy unless you're really good. We're gonna spend hours unpacking that last paragraph over and over. We're gonna talk about eudaimonia. It's already on the already on the already in the pipeline to discuss it, to unpack it, to understand it. But boy. There are so many nuggets in that one paragraph. So Aristotle talks and philosophizes on so much. And Kreeft is very helpful in showing us all this. It's really just a sketch. Aristotle really should be studied more and more as the classic thinkers help us to understand our world much better than our modern thinkers do. Whereas our modern thinkers help us to screw up the world more but that's for a mojo minute for another day. So this has been some very deep and heavy stuff. I will recommend to help you get your arms around Aristotle and his thinking. I will recommend the Hillsdale college free course on Aristotle's Neomachian ethics. It's quite good. It comes in bite-sized chunks. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn teaches it. It's very easy to understand him and apply it especially to your own do-it-yourself philosophy 101 course. Also, Peter Kreef recommends Mortimer Adler's Aristotle for Everybody, Difficult Thought Made Easy. He actually says that title is true, or that book is true to its title, rather. So um, there's another recommendation. So in today's Mojo Minute, we have so many nuggets of wisdom to pick from but I would recommend just picking one and then study that with the philosopher, begin to read him. And I would start perhaps uh, with recommending the Neomachian ethics and Kreef agrees with me, or should I say, I agree with him to just start with one book and study him. Probably the easiest one is the neo Neomachian ethics. But I lied and I said, well, we would have one final quote. We're actually going to end with the final quote from the book section for Aristotle because it's so good. Let's close this Mojo Minute with this quote. After Aristotle, no philosopher for 500 years until Plotinus or the Neoplatonitism had the ambition to try and conquer the whole world of philosophy. As Aristotle's pupil, Alexander the Great conquered the whole world militarily by creating an all-new, all-encompassing system, starting with a metaphysics, as Plato and Aristotle did. When ancient classical civilization declined first in Greece and then in Rome, philosophers turned away from these idealistic goals to a more modest one of arresting the decline of sanity and peace in themselves, even though they could not arrest the decline in the world. Wonder and speculative ambition gave way to a kind of early version of pop psychology, a cultivation of personal peace of mind in an increasingly decadent world. Four schools of philosophy continued in Athens, supported by the state, until the emperor Justinian, in a fit of Christian fundamentalism, closed all pagan schools in 529 AD. They were the Platonic, the Aristotelian, the Stoic, and the Epicurean schools, the Academy, the Lyceum, the Painted Porch, and the Garden. The latter two were the most popular of all, especially among the ordinary people.